When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon Group of Podcasts and home to a plethora of wonderful music-based podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Michaelidis, and after spending some 30 years in the music industry and working with some of the world's leading artists, I've finally been paroled, adopted by Pantheon and sharing some amazing stories from some equally amazing people. Moments That Rock is that moment where artists and music industry insiders share moments that rocked their world. And I love it. And as the Italian poet and playwright Cesare Pavese once said, we don't remember days, we remember moments. Hello and welcome. The festive period is always a good time to reflect. And I thought it'd be great to make a few calls, send a few emails and get some people to share some very special moments. So I won't make any introductions as to the guests today. They can just tell you themselves. Bruce knows all about it. Hello there, my name's Ian McNabb. I'm a singer-songwriter from uh, Liverpool, England. I'm 61 years of age. I've uh, been doing music since I was 15, when I used to play the cabaret working men's club circuit in the north of England, which was a lot of fun and a very good uh, grounding for what was to come later on. I've never had a proper job in my life. Uh, I don't consider what I do to be a job because I love doing it, although I did do what we call extra work, um, which means that you get paid about 50 or 60 quid to go and stand in the corner of uh, a soap or something like that, uh, or in any kind of dramas that ITV or the BBC were making in those days. Uh, In 1981, I formed a band called The Icicle Works, and we, uh, we were going for about seven or eight years, and we had songs like Birds Fly to a Scream, which was, did well in the States, Canada, and Europe. Love is a Wonderful Colour was a hit in the UK. Then we broke up in 1988, and then I went on to my solo career as Ian McNabb, and I've been starving ever since. <laughs> I think the the first one was when you do your first gig and it actually was about 150 yards from where I'm sitting now, was in a place called the Furfield Balmoral Club. And I got up with the house band, I was 15, and I had a nylon string acoustic guitar and I did uh, Your 16, which um, was a hit at the time for Ringo Starr. 
and a song called I Only Have Eyes For You, which our Garfunkel had a hit with, because there was a, a big thing for 50s songs being re-recorded in, in the 70s because of American graffiti and films like that. That was a big one. Um, second big one was making your first record. Uh, when you get to see your name on a piece of vinyl, seven-inch vinyl, that was incredible. Um, the next one would be being on top of the pops, which is what everybody aspired to in those days. You hadn't really made it until you you were on top of the pops. That was a, a pretty important moment, although I was slightly disappointed because the weeks leading up to, to when we were on, bands like Simple Minds and Echo and the Bunnymen, Susie the Banshees and U2 and the Pretenders and all, all these lot were on it. And when we were on, it was um, a guy called Roland Rat. And uh, this other guy who had a, a the, the theme song to a programme called Have We Design Pet, called That's Living All Right, Joe Fagan, which, funnily enough, I'd done some extra work with in the past. <laughs> um, but it was great to do Top of the Pops. And then the next thing was going to America and playing over there. That was very exciting. And uh, for all those kind of things to happen to you in your late teens, early 20s is, is pretty special. And then since then, just the thing of still being able to do it and, and still having en enough of an audience large enough to enable you to keep making records and, and keep doing gigs. Just tell us about the story, how your connection with Neil Young came about then. Well, I mean, I'd always been a fan. Um, I heard a song called Four Strong Winds, which was actually not a Neil Young song. That was an Ian Tyson song. But I heard that was getting played on the radio quite a lot in sort of 77, 78. And it was quite unusual because to me, it sort of conjured up, it, it kind of sounded like Jack Nicholson. It sounded like a film on record. And, and I hadn't really heard that before. This was way before I got into Dylan. That came much later. Like a lot of people, I had a bit of a problem with Dylan's voice until I, I got past that. Um, so I would, I'd always been a fan. And then when I was doing my second solo album, in, I was due to do it in 1993, and Andrew Lauder, the, um, the guy at my record company, heard a couple of my demos, and he said, oh, that sounds a bit like Neil Young and Crazy Horse. Why don't we try and get them to play on it? And I was like, oh, yeah. As if you know, but I, I was quite fortunate in the respect of because Neil was kind of flitting around with a couple of the grunge bands at then at that point, and he was making a record with Pearl Jam. So when John Porter uh, got in touch with Crazy Horse and said, "Oh, there's this guy from Liverpool. He's coming over to make a record. You fancy playing on a few tracks?" They were uh, what the Americans called pissed with Neil, not the English pissed, which means intoxicated. Uh, they were not intoxicated with Neil. So they were quite keen to that somebody had asked them to, to play. But I, I just went over there. They'd, I think they'd heard a couple of songs and it really clicked. And since you really, they don't let people in easily, those guys. You know, I found out later on they were prepared to give me a couple of hours in the studio. And if they didn't like it, they'd just pack up their stuff and go. I'm glad I didn't know that before I, I did that. And since then, we kept in touch. He was off doing something else and he wasn't particularly uh, happy about it either. You know, I had met Neil before that. I met Neil, first of all, in 1987 in 
Birmingham at the NEC after the show. Somebody arranged for that to happen. So, yeah, I've, I've met him quite a few times. And then the, the last time that I was in his the great man's presence was when I opened the show for him in Liverpool when he played here a few years ago. So that was that was a big thrill. That was the biggest VIP package you could ever have, you know. You know, sometimes I think that's probably the big moment that rocked. You know, Neil Young plays in Liverpool on a Sunday night. I was the opening act. I got the dressing room next to his, full of nibbles and booze. You know, all the passes. I got to watch the show from, you know, closer than anybody else. And that, that really was something else. It was like he did it for me, you know. It, it was just one of those things. And I've always said, I hope to God that Neil Young never plays in Liverpool again because then I'll have to go through it all again and I probably won't get the gig this time. So, you know, no, that, that, was a, that was a moment that rocked, so... I think as you get older, you appreciate it. You know, um, Will Sargent from Echo and the Bunnymen is, is, is writing his, his life story in, in three autobiographies. And the first one came out last year and he's been doing a lot of interviews about it. And he's like kind of he's like a quiet guy. You know, he, he, he lets the lead singer do all the talking. But he said one thing which really resonated with me is that... Um, Somebody said to him, you any regrets? Would you do anything differently? And he just said, no, not really. I just wish I would have allowed myself to enjoy it more. Because, you know, when you're that age in your 20s, when and it all happens in your 20s, you know, most of the time that's when you, you get into the, the game. And, I mean, some people get into the game later than that, but it, it's... it's, uh, it's kind of not usually the way it works and you've got an attitude when you're young you know and you think hey yeah the reason why I'm here is because I'm fucking great and and also you know if you if you sort of grew up idolizing people like the Velvet Underground and, and the Doors and and all of these kind of rebellious types you know it wasn't cool to go around smiling and being happy you know yet to have pair of shades on a leather jacket and kind of grunt a bit you know you just think all the, all the amazing things that that happened and they just they happen so quickly and you know at, at no point you sort of stop and go mm, let me enjoy this you're just thinking about other things and then when you look back on it I mean I, I don't mind looking back I prefer to concentrate on the on the now but when I look back I go wow you know I mean, I, when I think back to, th I opened up for Brian Wilson in Liverpool, you know, and and the teenage me would have gone, no, don't, that'll never happen. And now the sixty-year-old me goes, wow, that yeah. happened, you know, and I really appreciate it. I don't appreciate how he was with me, you know, because you know he's a bit of an oddball, Brian Wilson. You should never meet your heroes. I don't think that's true, but I think if you are going to meet your heroes. Choose your timing wisely. And, you know, a good time to go up to them is after a show, not when they're about to go on stage, which is what I did, because I was excited and he was just standing there. So I thought, oh, I'll do it now, you know. And I was, oh, you know, Mr. Wilson, uh, you know, uh, my name's Ian McNabb. I'm from Liverpool. Uh, thank you. You probably don't know, but I opened the show for you. Thank you so much. Your music's meant to, you know, the, I did the whole spiel and he just stood there looking at me like that. 
And I went, so thank you very much. And I held my hand out. And he did shake my hand and he went, hello, goodbye, security. <laughs> so I couldn't really listen to the Beach Boys for a, for a little while after that. Somebody's music means so much to you. And you've spent so many times listening to it, you know. I, you know, I remember once you saying, talking to me about Leonard Cohen's Waiting for the Miracle, you know, just being oh. like a song that is just devastating to you and to me, you know. And if you get the opportunity to meet somebody like that, I, I never had the opportunity to meet Leonard Cohen. I don't think I would have been able to handle it. But to I did. To, to, I know you did. To try and convey what they mean to you with a sort of thumbs up and a, my name's so-and-so. I do this, but I'm nothing. But, you you know, to try and get that across in the brief moment is very, very difficult to do. And you usually end up finding yourself saying something stupid. The first thing that I said to Neil Young when we sat down in his dressing room was, when was he getting back with Crosby, Stills and Nash? And him and, him and his manager just started laughing, you know. And it just came out, you know. You, you, and you think about, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? But it's... You know, it's very difficult. There's something about Leonard Cohen that other artists don't have. He just, I mean, obviously, you know, Dylan is, is a great poet. But Leonard kind of really does have that gift of making you feel as if he's talking about you, you know. And you go, wow, how does he know that, you know. And I know that, I mean, I've read just about everything that there is to read about him. And I know that he developed his songs over such a long period of time so that he had every lyric correct. And, and he always says, my, my dwelling on the, on the lyrics for great periods of time does not immediately result in their excellence. Talk about guys that didn't really get the foot in the door. I don't think he made his first record till he was like 32. And they yeah. put him with Simon and Garfunkel's producer and tried to put bells and whistles on his songs. And then it was only when they realised that just him with a, a good string acoustic and maybe a little bit of strings and a little bit of percussion and whatever was, was all that was required. But, you know, I, I mean, I still... I still play his records and they, they don't bring me down or anybody that I'm with. It's, it's just really cool. It's like a, a great movie and there's an awful lot of humour in his songs. I, I, I love artists who really tell it like it is, but there's always got to be a little bit of levity to it, you know, which is why I struggle with the, the likes of, you know, Radiohead and, and Nick Cave and things like that. No disrespect to those artists, they're great. But it's there's no kind of light getting through. Great stuff. Ian McNabb telling us about stories about Neil Young and then a bit about Leonard Cohen and stuff. But that's what we're here for, storytelling. You want to hear some more? I do. Well, hi, my name is Steve Glum. Uh, friend of Tony Michaelitis, fortunately, happy to be here. And uh, I've had a, a good career in marketing and big brand uh, entertainment, um, attractions, entertainment, restaurants, resorts, lifestyle brands. Some of the brands that I've uh, been fortunate to work for or run was, you know, Walt Disney Company. Uh, I opened Pleasure Island. I worked for Hard Rock Cafe for about 10 years opening Hard Rocks all over the world and 
I've got a great many stories to connect to that brand. House of Blues, same thing. Worked for uh, Isaac Tigret, who was the founder of House of Blues, as well as founder of Hard Rock Cafe. Again, more rock stories and blues stories and great connections um, to the entertainment world. I made a move to Ripley's, believe it or not, where I ran uh, marketing for, you know, the strange, the weird and the bizarre for quite a time. And that's another great brand story about a bunch of weird stuff I never wanted to have anything to do with, but ultimately had a lot to do with. Um, and then uh, most recently, uh, I was founder of uh, Ace Cafe North America and bringing uh, the famous Ace Cafe London brand to America um for the first time that's bikes cars and rock and roll again the rock and roll theme and a lot of great stories and hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds our family now has three pairs of raycon earbuds around the house and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price and yes she loves them now if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of raycons or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Kind of spirit and history and culture of music that's thread through there as well. And these days I... uh... I am a brand manager for a British company that um, makes uh, superior quality motorcycle clothing for a number of different brands. And uh, it's an exciting time. Really fortunate to be able to meet many of my idols, right? Um, 
being a lover of music and particularly rock and roll and being able to, you know, kind of, um, you know, find it and, uh, and, and, and research it, let's say on your own as a kid and just discover what it meant to you as a person. And then, you know, a little bit later, now you're working with these same folks that are your icons uh, and your heroes. And you are now, you know, you can't necessarily be a fan you got to be almost some kind of a, I won't say peer, but kind of like that in a business sense when you're trying to work with them, but you can't be all crazy fanboy all about it, even though deep down inside you're a crazy fanboy about it. And I've got a lot of fanboy stories, but you couldn't let that out at the time. But yeah, there's some great moments. I mean, you know, I got to meet Bo Diddley. I got to work with Bo a number of times. Bo Diddley. Without him, we wouldn't be here, Tone. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you know, and, I was talking to, you know, uh, my son about Chuck Berry this morning. He's doing a report on Chuck Berry. I said, I got to tell you the story. You might not know it. I spoke to Chuck Berry. He's like, what? I'm like, yeah. And, you know, I wasn't prepared to speak to Chuck. But those are some of the moments like that where, you know, I'd be happy to tell those stories here now if we've got the time. But, you know, those aren't coming around again. You're not getting to sit, you know, at the foot of Bo Diddley and have him tell you what it was like on the Chitlin circuit back in the day with tears in your eyes, hearing the pain in his voice about what happened to those black artists in the South in those years, or, you know, talk to Chuck Berry about a potential gig you have coming up and you he gets on the phone and you're not prepared to speak to him because you thought you're going to speak to an assistant. I mean, Chuck Berry, like, really, you know, so you look back at those and those are the things that will always stand out. And of course there's plenty of them. Um, I introduced Slash to Bo Diddley. Slash he took his hat off when he met him. Hi, Mr. Diddley. My name is Slash. Gave him his real name. You know, so yeah, those are some great moments, Tony. And um, and, a, and a moment, you know, today, I mean, we just found out Meatloaf died today on January, what, 21, uh, 2022. And I was fortunate to uh, meet the man on a couple of occasions. I had lunch. I had lunch with Meatloaf. I had Meatloaf for lunch. Um, but he was just a generous human, a, a big hearted, big guy, huge superstar, but a nice guy, generous, smart, um, understood. I think his luck maybe at where he had landed. I won't say it's all luck, but certainly there's a great amount of luck that goes with any of this, but I think he kind of knew where he was. It was sad to read that this morning. I'd had the pleasure of working with him one, when I was, at disney um we had booked him for a show at pleasure island and then another time at hard rock later later on and uh there's a funny quick story there was a you know i I, you know you don't really know them as people right because we don't know them i mean we meet them you know they pass by like passing ships right you have a show you meet a, a musician artist a rock or whatever um, but unless you're really on the inside, you don't really get to know them so much as people, but, or, or rarely do you get that. But I recall one time, this was after I'd met Meatloaf a couple of times and I was at Hard Rock and I was at my little, you know, five by five square foot office in the bowels of the Hard Rock. You know, it was the, the uh, security room where I had my desk and I had a call from upstairs that said, hey, Steve, Meatloaf's here. And I'm like, oh, cool. Meatloaf's here. And, and at my job at the time was I was the guy that was always the one that was, you know, having to go, not having, but luckily able to go talk to all the artists because I was the PR manager. I was a PR man. 
even though when I got that job, I didn't know what PR meant. But anyway, my job was to go deal with them. And I, and I quite loved that I was the guy. Like they, if, if, a, if a rocker, a celeb, a musician, a, an actor, a movie star walked into the hard rock, if I didn't know about it, somebody was in trouble. I had to know because I was the one who was tasked with taking care of them. Not just me, but I was the, you know, the front guy. Anyway, hey, Steve, Meatloaf's here. Really awesome. So I go upstairs. Where is he? And one of the, you know, the servers, like, he's over there. He's in the corner. And, I, and I, I'm like, cool. And typically, as is my role, I would go and, you know, introduce myself and say hello and shake their hand and find out if, that, if I can do anything for them. You know, why are you here? Maybe you got a show in town. Can I get you anything? You know, maybe can I get a photo? Or would you rather be, you know? Um, just here, you know, on your own, just having a meal quiet. And, um, and I walk up and immediately when I get within 10 feet of the table, I, I go, that's not meatloaf. And I, and I go to the server, I go, Hey, wh- wh- where's meatloaf? Because well, no, that's him. I go, no, that's not him. That's a guy trying to look like meatloaf. Did he introduce himself as meatloaf? Yeah, he did. I said, Oh, he did. So he's here pretending his meatloaf to, you know, maybe get our meatloaf for free, which was the case. So, <laughs> backstory was that meatloaf was on tour and in town and quite frankly it could have been him but it was not him on this night and so i i i i see that this guy is doing this and so i don't approach him just yet i go back and i call meatloaf's manager oh hey just want to let you know that there's some guy in here pretending to be meatloaf he's like oh yeah that guy he follows us around he's always trying to get free shit because he he looks like meatloaf i go yeah he does look like meatloaf but if you know me it's clearly not him yeah i know but he tries so hard to look like meatloaf like in the you know classic sense of the heyday of meatloaf you know you're like if you're gonna look like slash you're probably gonna put the top hat and have the hair on your face and you're gonna walk it and you know but clearly Slash is past that now and he doesn't do that anymore. But if you're trying to be Slash, that's how you're going to look when you're walking and trying to pass yourself off as him, right? This is what this guy was doing. He was trying to look like old meatloaf and most people wouldn't get that he's moved a bit on. He wasn't looking like, you know, today's meatloaf. He was like, yes, it's meatloaf, right? Anyway, so I call him and he's like, yeah, that guy. I'm like, what do you want me to do? He's like, you know what? Kick him out. You know, that guy shouldn't be doing that. He shouldn't be like eating on our dime or whatever. I'm like, okay. And I was all like huffing and puffing. I'm going to do what Meatloaf says. So I go upstairs and I see the guy and I just observe him for a minute. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to go talk to him. So I go, hey, how you doing? He's like, hey. And I go, hey, how are you? He's good, good. And I said, look, man, I know you're not Meatloaf. Okay. And I, but I'm not going to make a scene. If you want a meal, I'd be happy to buy it for you. But I'm not going to make a big deal about it because you know, you're not Meatloaf. And I know. You're not meatloaf. And guess what? Meatloaf's people know that you're here and that you're not meatloaf either. So why don't you just have your meal and just be about your way? And he was like, oh, okay, okay, thank you. Okay, I'm just, you know, whatever. And um, that's how it went. Never saw him again. Never heard from him again. I don't know who it was. I should probably Google it and look up who was the guy who always passed himself off <laughs> as meatloaf. But that's what I thought about this morning when I saw the news about meatloaf's passing. My hometown is Freehold, New Jersey, and you won't know Freehold, New Jersey, unless you are a Springsteen fan, because guess what? That's his hometown, too. So um, growing up in Freehold, uh, I never met Bruce. Bruce is probably a good 10 or 12, 15 years older than me, but I always heard about him because during the time 
um, he, you know, he'd come out with darkness on the edge of town. He was a big, big star and he had, uh, been able to, uh, amass quite a career. And of course, in these years, Stevie was, you know, a friend, a, 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 a cohort, a collaborator, a guitarist in the E Street Band and so on. And so, um, when I finally made my way to hard rock, um, and this was in the early two thousands, I'm going to say, uh, we had just signed on to be the major sponsor of this thing that Stevie was hawking. And it was this radio show. He wanted to do a radio show. He wanted to make a show about kind of rock and roll in the history of rock, but he wanted to do it old school. He wanted to do it where there was a real DJ behind the mic, where somebody was telling a story and connecting the dot and the threads between who came before and who comes now. Why is this record meaningful? And I got to tell you, as an aside, I've never met anybody who's more knowledgeable about rock and roll than Stevie Van Zandt. Um, he is a walking encyclopedia of it. Anyway, he had this show and we were like, okay, it sounds interesting. Um, you know, what do you want to do? Well, I want to play cool records and I want to kind of talk about the threads of rock. And I want to show that, you know, that there's all forms of music, there's surf rock and, you know, there's, uh, uh, there's, uh, you know, new rock and there's alternative rock and there's, you know, new wave and new age and, and, and whatever, and all, all these forms of rock. And, but, but they all kind of come back to the kind of origins and the foundations of music and who started it and who did it. And why is some band, you know, interested to do something and make their own sound? Why, why are there threads anyway? So we were like, cool. So um, we signed on and I just happened to be the guy that was in charge of dealing with Stevie. And so here I am, and my job now is to talk to Stevie and help kind of formulate the, the plan, the marketing plan of how to work this show, market this show, and syndicate this show to radio stations. And um, now today, this show is called, well, it was called that too then, but it was called Little Stevens Underground Garage. And today it's on Sirius XM and it's huge. But back then... We didn't have any stations. It was not on Sirius XM. In fact, Sirius and XM were two separate companies and hadn't come together yet. There was this thing, this satellite radio was like a something thing and no one really kind of knew what it was, but we were doing terrestrial radio stations like you, Tony, just talking to terrestrial radio stations about artists. Hey, how do I get a record played? We were, hey, how do I get this show played? It was about a two hour show that Stevie was doing and he would press it on CD <laughs> before streaming and then we'd send it to the radio stations that um, that would play it during whatever you know couple hours they had, whatever slot they had. And so my job was to help call and syndicate stations, but also help develop the, the show uh, for the Hard Rock and make sure that you know our brand, you know, platforms were being looked after and so on. So I had a lot of interaction with Stevie, and um, frankly, at the time, you know, this was. Uh, I'm going to say this is like 2002, I think. Um, you know, the E Street Band hadn't been on tour for a while. Spring, Springsteen put them back together. They were about to release a record. They were about to go on tour. The Sopranos was huge. And Stevie played Silvio Dante. So here I am talking to not only the guy that is, um, you know, a collaborator of Springsteen's, but in his own right is now you know, um, not only a, a rocker on his own, but done so many things, you know, and um, 
stood up for human rights and apartheid, you know, anti-apartheid and, you know, not going to play Sun City. I mean, and, and then here he is also playing Silvio Dante on a huge, so he's got a huge tour, a huge record, a huge TV show. And here I am talking to him about a radio show, quite frankly, daily. Um, and um, I got to say, I just love the guy. He just was, he was real. He, he, he knew everything. I, I was a student when I listened to him speak about what he was trying to build and where he came from. And we were fortunate in those years to be the, the title sponsor. And I was fortunate in that I was the one that was able to do all the talking and create these things with and for him, for his show. And we kicked the show off in New York city at the hard rock that used to be on West 57th street. Um, the original New York hard rock. And uh, we had a giant um, party slash uh, live broadcast where Stevie invited all of his rocker friends and rocker, uh, you know, cohorts and actor. I mean, at this party, Tony was, um, you know, Bon Jovi walked in and Richie Sambora and, uh, and then here comes um, James Gandolfini and, and, uh, and all the cast to the Sopranos. And, uh, you know, just, I can't remember them when the list goes on every two seconds, there was somebody new walking in because they all wanted to celebrate this with Stevie. I had, hired go-go girls not even go girl, models that we dressed up like go-go girls because stevie is all about kind of that 60s vibe that psychedelia thing and so we had i had these platforms made and we dressed these girls you know and they'd come in they were like dressed in like you know knee-high white boots and these cool like you know psychedelic looking hairdos and you know outfits and they're dancing kind of like almost like you know like in um um austin powers you know as they and the, the cut scenes you know and it was all, it was almost just like that, but we had them all dancing and we're doing music and there's psychedelic and there's wild in the room. Right. So it's like a dance party. Stevie's upstairs overlooking, like he's in a hawk's nest overlooking with live mic spinning records while we record it, while there's a VIP rock star party with, with everybody there and real other people and guests that were only on our guest list downstairs dancing with go-go girls and, you know, moving lights and, you know, it was so awesome. And that was the first show and we syndicated in New York and then we syndicated around the country. And, uh, and then from there it became wildly popular. And then now it's on Sirius XM and it's still there and Stevie's still doing it. And it's a worldwide brand now. Um, I will say also that, um, yeah, as another part of that time with Stevie, um, we're there in New York. And of course, his offices were right above the Hard Rock. So he had a, I think it's still his company's called Renegade Nation. And they were above the offices uh, on, on West 57th Street. So we were you know, there and seeing him a lot. And uh, one night he goes, hey, let's go to dinner. And we're like, okay. So um, a uh, colleague of mine, and myself go to dinner with Stevie and we go to this little restaurant. I forget the name of that little Italian joint around the corner from the hard rock thing was on seventh or eighth. Anyway, um, we were kind of right there in the middle on West 57th, but um, we go in there and we sit down and then, you know, about two seconds later, Clive Davis walks in and sits at the table behind us. <laughs> and, you know, clearly because, you know, Stevie's from, you know, new york and new jersey and that area and you know the sopranos is based there and springsteen is based there and it's all based there so everyone knows when he walks in and clearly stevie's not trying to hide him he's walking in with a bandana psychedelic shirt and whatever 
And uh, so he gets, you know, kind of the attention and the best of everything and quite rightfully so. Right. I mean, he's Stevie. So um, <laughs> he, he sees, you know, Clive walks in and sees Stevie and comes up, gives him a big, you know, slap of yeah, you know, talking or whatever. And I don't know, there were some other people in the, in the thing and we're, you know, the room, we're just talking. And at one point I'm trying to figure out what we're going to do after New York. So, okay, we've just done a show in New York and we want to get attention. We want to do like a press event slash show slash party in other parts of the country. Well, what do you want to do? So we're like, we talk, start talking about it. And let me tell you, Stevie is, he, he's exactly the same guy in real life as he is on stage or in an interview or even playing Silvio with a wig. He's that guy. You know, he's like, well, you know, what do we do in LA? What are we talking about? How about we want to do a show in LA? How about we do a show in LA? He gets out his phone and he calls Hef. He calls you Hefner while I'm sitting there, man. And he's like, yeah, what happened? Yeah. So, you know, the thing, blah, 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 whatever, doing a show, it's a thing. Let's see some real. So I'm thinking maybe I do a show at uh, Dimension. What do you think? All right. I'll have my people go. All right. Bye. Click. And I'm like, oh my God. Number one, he's got Hef's number in his cell phone. That's one. That's a mind blower right there. And then two is within 10 seconds, he just got the deal that, you know, we just made up 20 seconds earlier. And now we're doing, we're going to do a show at the mansion. And now though, there's going to have to be a meeting. We're going to have to go. He's like, okay, so, you know, you're going to have to go to the mansion and, uh, you know, figure it all out. And then I'll come do a show. And, blah, blah, blah. and I'm like, yes, Steve. Yes. Okay. Yes. I'll go. And I'm looking at my colleague, a guy named Chris. And um, <laughs> again, these are the moments when you cannot be a fan but it comes out. You can't just be fanboy, but it comes out, right? Because you're like, number one, you're sitting in a restaurant with Stevie and Clive Davis is behind you. Two, you were just privy to a phone call that you had with Hefner. Three, now you're about to do a show at the mansion. Uh, and then you're looking at you know each other and you're like, is this real? Or is this like, a, are we really doing this? And so from there, it went to another whole great story that I'll tell you in another time. But um, it was just one of those moments that, you know, I'm sure I won't have again. And it was just a moment in time. We ended up, you know, we did go to the mansion. We did have a whole meeting and a lunch outside by the pool next to the grotto. I mean, that, that's a great story too, Tom. But, you know, that, that was just like, there were many moments like that with Stevie because he knew everybody. Tony, everybody. Like, he could talk about a fixer. Like, if you have a problem in rock, you want Stevie to be your friend. He can fix anything. He knows everybody and they all take his call. That's more important than anything. Great stuff. Great stories from great people. Thank you, Steve Glom, and thank you, Ian McNabb. And we'll be back next week with Moments That Rock from other people and their Moments That Rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.